All right, guys, I'm going to pull you back together. Um, we got 631 by my count, so I've already given up a whole minute, which I never, I'm never short on time. So let me, uh, before I pray and dive into things, I'd love to focus just for a second on question 22. Hopefully you got to it in your, in your little, little table there. Uh, what's your default response when you get stuck in a difficult situation? Who in your life do you seek out for wisdom and advice? What can be the dangers of not having wise, godly advice in these moments? I just want to uh, encourage you, if you don't have someone, if you were, you were thinking through those questions and you thought to yourself, I really don't have anybody that I ask in, in hard moments, I want to encourage you to seek somebody out. Um, you know, mentorship is, spiritual mentorship is, is one of those things that uh, there's not clearly defined relational rules for. In the sense that like when you're dating, like when you're a teenager and you're trying to find a girlfriend, like there's rules. The guy asks the girl, right? Like the guy pays for the date. The, the, we know how to, how to navigate relationships of romance in our lives. There's, there's cultural norms that, that inform those relationships. But there's really not for mentor-mentee. Like do I ask somebody to mentor me or do I ask somebody that can I mentor you? You know how? Who approaches who? Who pays for the lunches and the coffees? How, how does this thing work? It's, it, it can feel a little awkward even as men to be like, is this weird to have a close friendship with something like that? I just want to exhort you, you need that in your life. It's a good thing to have in your life, and there's no rules, which means there's no wrong way to do it. So if you're a young person who's desiring to have some wisdom in your life as you navigate the complexities of, of your season, Look for older men around you in our church who, who you trust, who you see some fruit in their life that, uh, that you'd like, and, and have the courage to go approach them and ask for it. And if you're an older guy who's like, listen, I, I have some wisdom. I, I see some things, and you see some younger guys in your world, in your MC group, in your, at your table, in, in the room that you sort of have a relationship with, they might really need it. And God, if, if He's prompting your heart, we're going to talk a little bit about the promptings of God. He might be, he might be stirring something. So all that to say... Step towards that. Don't, you know, I, I know it can be awkward and can feel a little weird, but I loved that they, they brought that to the, the forefront here uh, with Festus and Agrippa. And they're not believers. They're, they're um, Gentiles who, who are not following God, and yet they see the wisdom of that. And I think the Bible calls us to that too. Second uh, Tim- Timothy 2, 2, I think that's right, um, talks about, uh, it's Paul exhorting Timothy. He said, everything I've taught you, entrust to faithful men who can teach others also. And he's sort of uh, describing this faithful transference of the faith from one generation to the, another, to, to the next. And, and so I think that um, while that absolutely happens in the church in some normative ways with preaching and with MC groups and all that kind of stuff, I, I think the informal relationships of mentorship are vital as well. So um, just a free commendation that's not in my notes, and now it's 635. So let me pray. We're going to hop straight in, and I'll try to move quickly to keep us on time. Lord, we love you. Uh, guide our time. Uh, we, we entrust our hearts to you, Lord. As your word goes forth, I pray you'd uh, keep anything out of my mouth that might be unfruitful and unfaithful, and, and you'd let your word be clear and, and strong. And I pray just for soft hearts, Lord. We know that uh, seed doesn't always fall on soft hearts. Sometimes our hearts are hardened to your word. Sometimes there's rocks under the soil that just won't let the word take root. Sometimes there's uh, thorns that are choking out any, any life that your word might want to bring to our hearts. And I just pray you clear all that out of the way, Lord. Do some good plowing right now. Holy Spirit, come among us and make soft, fertile soil so that the, the things you want to do in our lives might be uh, possible. Um, 
which is interesting to think about, Lord, because it's impossible without you. We need you <laughs> to, to follow you. So uh, order what you will and, uh, and give us what you order. Lord, do it. It's in your name that we pray all these things. Amen. All right, um, narrative overview. I want to start off with a quick, we, we covered three chapters this week, which is more than uh, we've been, been tracking at any other time. Um, I think the reason they're picking up the pace here is because, as you notice, there's a high emphasis on narrative. So not a lot of spiritual content. I hate to even say that. I mean, it's the Bible, so it's all spiritual. But, but you get what I mean. I actually was struggling as I was trying to prepare what to talk about here because it's just so much history condensed into one. Um, I've got a thread I'll, I'll pull out in a minute, but uh, there's, there's uh, th- two years, over two years of Paul's life compressed into these three chapters, and the main scope of the narrative are these three trials, these three major events that take place while he's in prison. So if you'll remember where we were the week before spring break, Paul had just been arrested there in Jerusalem by the uh, Ro- Roman tribune. His name's Claudius Lysias, and he uh, didn't know what was going on. He didn't know why Paul was creating this chaos, but uh, begins to interrogate him, begins to try to figure this all out. And uh, he quickly realizes there's no real problem with Paul. It's mainly these guys who uh, have created the riot in response to Paul. Um, and yet, he doesn't really know what to do with Paul. Uh, if he lets him go, he assumes he'll be killed. He hears about this. We, we saw this again last week. Um, he hears about this plot that the Jews have to kill Paul. And so he ends up just... This is above my pay grade. I'm going to send him off to the Roman governor. That's where uh, our, our last week of content ended. And this week, he appears before the, the Roman governor of the region, whose name is Felix. Uh, all of chapter 24 is, is this moment, uh, these moments that occur before Felix. That's a whole two years, we're told. So uh, it starts off with this trial. The Ananias, the high priest in Jerusalem, comes with a few of the elders. They do conduct a trial before Felix. Paul defends himself. Um, and then we're told that Felix just sort of puts off a decision, leaves Paul in prison for two years, and starts dialoguing with him, brings him back and forth. Uh, he, he appears to like Paul. He has some knowledge of the way, we're told, and so he, he wants to hear more about Jesus and these things. We're going to get into that a little bit more in just a moment. But, uh, so that's chapter 24. The second event happens as Felix is removed. Uh, we know from the, the Jewish historian Josephus that that happened around A.D. 60, uh, when Nero, the emperor, removed uh, Felix and put uh, Festus in his place. Uh, Festus now has a prisoner. He doesn't know why he's there, so he holds another trial. The Jews come again to make accusations against Paul. That's chapter 25, where the second trial sort of takes place before Festus. Um, and Paul defends himself, but Festus appears to sort of be inclined towards the Jews. He's about to send Paul back to Jerusalem to face another trial. And Paul appeals to Caesar which is uh, the, the right, you can actually find this in, in historical records, but one of the central rights of a Roman citizen was you could appear, appeal your case all the way up to Caesar himself. And so uh, Paul, being a Roman citizen, he, uh, he asks for this right. Uh, he, I guess he senses that his case is going nowhere there in Palestine. And so um, Festus says, okay, you've appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. Um, but he's also confused about why is he even in captivity. So he, he reaches out to Agrippa. That brings us to chapter 26. Agrippa is the king. This is King Herod Agrippa II. His dad, King Herod Agrippa, also was uh, the guy in chapter 12 who murdered James, the brother of John, who was one of the 12 apostles. Um, and then he subsequently dies. We're told that in, in chapter 12 of Acts. Well, his son who's known as Agrippa in this, this chapter, um, 
becomes the king of the region. Uh, he has all this pomp, you know, it describes there with, with his wife as they're hearing this trial. Uh, he wants to hear Paul, so they, they put together the third trial there in chapter 26. This is the longest account that we have of Paul, the, the biggest recounting of his words there in, um, in the, the course of these three trials. Um, and you saw it, he, he tells his conversion story once again. You get a, a few new words, a few new phrases in there that I think are interesting. Um, and then it sort of ends with this sort of sad acknowledgement by Agrippa and Festus that Paul is innocent. He can be freed, but the problem is now his case has been appealed to Caesar. He has to go to Caesar. So all of this just sort of screams, maybe you felt this, injustice, right? Like, why is, this is Paul, he's the church planner. He's done three missionary journeys. He could do another one. You know, why is he still in prison, Lord? But, uh, but that's the case where he's at. All of his time is spent, you know, this is from his third missionary journey. That's the map. But, um, but you can see there down the bottom, all of his time is spent in Caesarea, this whole three chapters. He's about to be sent to Rome. We only have two more chapters left to cover next week. His final uh, part of, of his story will be his journey to Rome and then his time in Rome itself. Uh, he'll ultimately die there in Rome. But, um, but that's, that's sort of what played out this week. So uh, real quick theme overview, as we always do. Uh, I saw a little bit of all of these in there. Let me just highlight the, the big ones. Work of the Holy Spirit. Um, not, not mentioned once. This is the same as last week. We don't have any specific uh, explicit mentions of the Holy Spirit, but implicitly, he's, you can just sort of see him creating these moments for witnessing. So we, we told you the biggest theme in this book are themes one and two, the work of the Holy Spirit to enable the witnessing of the saints of the gospel. So this is what God does in his church, what he's been doing from the beginning, from Acts 1-8 to the end. The Holy Spirit sort of uh, bubbles up these moments, providentially creates moments where the church can witness, and that absolutely plays out here. Paul does a tremendous job testifying to Jesus before the rulers of this of this uh, area. In fact, I, I don't want you to miss that. I think that's such a cool thing we're going to see play out even to the end. Um, Paul has finished his ministry effectively. He's going to be writing the Bible from here forward. He's going to write epistles, and so he has great prison ministry still to do. Um, but what God does with Paul at the end of his life is put him in positions to proclaim the gospel before the most powerful people in the world. So uh, he'll, he proclaims it before the, the governor, before the, uh, the tribune there in his area, before the king of his area, and ultimately before Caesar himself. So the gospel is going forth to kings and rulers, which is exactly what Jesus promised it would. Um, back in, uh, I, I think it's the, the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13, Luke 21, Matthew chapter 10. You, you catch these moments where Jesus is, is prophesying that his disciples will go forth uh, before kings and rulers to proclaim the gospel. Totally playing out here. Work of the Holy Spirit to create that. Uh, development of the church, not much. Again, I, I told you this one's going to kind of go under the scenes for the remainder of this book. The one exception would be Paul is writing the scriptures as, as he goes through this. So that's a significant part of the, the church today. The New Testament uh, epistles are being written through this imprisonment that he endures um, during these years. Salvation history, definitely some stuff shows up here, mainly in chapter 26 as Paul sort of gives his defense before King Agrippa. Agrippa is, uh, he, he's married a Jew, he's from that area, so he knows Judaism. And Paul, as he tries to evangelize this king, is sort of connecting Christ with the Old Testament prophets. I'm sure you picked up on that, but, but just wanted to point that out. Jesus is not disconnected from the Old Testament. Acts is screaming at us that, that Christianity is not a new sect, a, a tiny little you know, uh, cult that's, that's split off. No, it's the true road from the Old Testament to the new. Uh, Christianity is the faithful path that the prophets foretold. Um, then the last one, evangelism 
evangelization of the nations, of course you saw that as the gospel goes forth to these Gentiles in all these places. Uh, so with that, got to move quickly here. Uh, the, th- the thread. I know there's a lot of narrative told here, but the thread I want to pull out is actually uh, the one that shows up regarding the work of God upon our hearts and the way we respond to pressings of the Holy Spirit. So let me, let me show you what I mean. i got three points to kind of highlight this. First point, if you want to take some notes, number one, it's in our nature to resist conviction. So in our lives, when the Holy Spirit is working, pressing upon our hearts, pushing against sin in our life to t- get sin out, or drawing us towards obedience, calling us towards acts of obedience, faithfulness to Scripture, it is in us, it's in all of you, it's in all of us, to want to push back against the work of the Holy Spirit and resist His work in our life. That's what I'm trying to say here. We have a sinful nature. We've inherited this from, from Adam. Uh, this, this comes into us, and it's inclined against the things of God. Romans chapter 3 says, No one seeks God. No, not one. Every sheep has, has gone his own way. We all want to set ourselves up as our own rulers, right? We don't want to have anyone dictating for us how our life should go, including God. And so it's in us, I I just want you to to see this, I think it's on display here, to resist the rule of God leading us. So where it shows up uh, is really in both Felix and Agrippa. And let me show you this. Look first at chapter 24, verses 24 and 25. So Felix imprisons Paul for two years, and during this time he keeps calling Paul back to talk to him. And 24 and 25 says that, that as Paul comes to him, he speaks about faith in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul's talking about. He reasons about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. What is Paul doing there? Again and again. He's sharing the gospel. He's, t- he's, he's pointing to faith in Jesus. He's telling him that God demands righteousness from us, that we don't have self-control to actually do righteousness. We, we can't live out God's law that He gives us. And there's a coming judgment against us if we, if we don't live up to God's law. And the only salvation from this is faith in Jesus. He's sharing the gospel. This is, this, is every, this is God, man, Christ's response. This is everything we believe today. Paul clearly proclaiming this to Felix. And look how Felix responds. It says, Felix was alarmed. What is that, y'all? That's conviction. That's the Holy Spirit pressing on him. It, it, that's the uh, amplified word of fear in the, the original Greek there. So Felix is hearing the gospel message, hearing about hell hearing about his unrighteous deeds, his need for salvation and, and redemption, and he's feeling afraid. That is what every believer or every unbeliever feels as the Lord is sort of drawing him to salvation, that conviction of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is at work here. I, I just want you to feel that. Pressing on Felix. Now, we're not told how this story ends with Felix, so I don't know how it all plays out, but we're told what happens in this moment. What does he do? He says, go away from me. He, in the moment of this conviction, he presses against it and resists the Holy Spirit and wants Paul out of the room. I'll call for you later. And what I'm, what I'm trying to help you see is, is this is in all of our nature. Like when the Holy Spirit is pressing on us, we just kind of want to hide. We kind of want to move away. Agrippa does the exact same thing. Uh, Paul sort of, in the end of, of chapter 26, as he's sort of hitting his, his, uh, the big moment of his defense, he appeals, in, in verse 27, he appeals to Agrippa. He says, Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa replies and says, Paul, in, in such a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul goes on to say, yes, short or long, I want you to be as I am. You know, except for these chains. Uh, he, he's, he's pressing, the Holy Spirit is pressing on this. Paul is pressing, he's seeking to persuade. And what does Agrippa do? He withdraws. Verse 30 says the king rose and he left. 
Um, so once again, you see sort of Holy Spirit pressing and Agrippa withdrawing. And this, this is just what I want to show. This happens, family. Uh, this is, this, our hearts are inclined towards this kind of response. Sin does not like to be exposed. What's in the dark doesn't want to come in the light. We have what the Bible calls in the Old Testament, God again and again calls the Israelite people stiff-necked. What does that mean? It means that as he wants to bow them to himself, I want you Israelites to follow me, to submit to me, to be supple to my leadership, but they just resist it. They harden their spine. They harden their neck against the Lord. They want to go their own way. This is in all of us. It's not good. I'm just pointing out to you here that, that this is a reality. I mean, have, have any of you felt this in your life? Me too. I'll tell you just, uh, just a season of my life that I'm not proud of, but, but was real. Uh, I, I, for a long season in my life, struggled with an addiction to pornography. And I don't use that word addiction lightly. Like I, I, I really do feel like uh, addiction is the right word. I still, to this day, consider myself an addict, even though I've been clean for almost 10 years. God's done an amazing work in my life. But I grew up in the age of the internet. My parents didn't know anything about parental controls. And so here I'm handed computers at the wrong age at, uh, without restrictions and, and the wrong you know, processes lead me to early exposure, which led to early addiction. And I struggled for years. I carried it into marriage. Um, and I vividly remember, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus this whole time. I'm saved. I vividly remember sitting in church services when the topic of pornography would be brought up. And I remember my hands starting to sweat. Like if I was holding my wife's hand in church and the topic would be brought up, I'd try to, you know, scratch my nose and get my hand out of her hand so that she couldn't feel the conviction that was palpating through my body. I would try to, when we'd get in the car after church, I'd try to change the subject as quick as possible, bring up something else so that she wouldn't probe me and be like, do you struggle with that? Like I, I just, there's something, there was something in me at that time that just, the Holy Spirit was convicting, was leading through the Word, had something good for me, and I was just, everything in me wanted to run and hide. That's in us. And it's not good, which brings us to the second one here. We must learn, like Paul, to submit to God in His will. When the Holy Spirit's pressing, even when it's painful, we must learn uh, what Romans chapter 2, verse 4 teaches us, that God's kindness is what leads us to repentance. In those moments, though it feels like he's killing us, though it feels like I need to run and hide, it's his grace, it's his kindness to draw us to himself. That as much as it feels like death, in truth, life is on the other side of that death. Even if it's going to blow up as you bring it out, life is on the other side of that. So uh, I think Paul shows us this in chapter 26. This is, this is not just a thread, I'm trying, a point I'm trying to make. I see it in this text as he reveals some new words that God told him in this uh, conversion moment on the way to Damascus uh, when he's talking to um, Agrippa. Did anybody notice in verse 14 the new phrasing that's there? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he adds a sentence that we haven't been told in his conversion story so far. What was it? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. What does that mean? Does anybody know what a goad is? Anybody look it up? What is it? Anybody a farmer? The animal used to kick back at the plow that they were pulling, and so they, the farmers would fasten kind of like a sharp spike or something That's on, right. on the plow, so when they kick back, they... Yeah, it's a prod. It's a it's a animal. It's a tool used in farming in in uh, leading animals when the animal won't go the way it's supposed to go. 
you prod it, you goad it, you spike it, you, you, you hurt it, you cause some pain in it to stir it along. And if the animal still won't go, if it keeps kicking against the goad as you've goaded it, what, what happens? It gets goaded again. It just becomes more painful. And it's interesting. I've never thought about this before until studying it this week. But it's so fascinating to me that the Holy Spirit, that, that Jesus uses that phrase with Paul. Because what does that tell us? It actually tells us that Paul was being convicted by the Holy Spirit prior to the road to Damascus. That he's been kicking against the goads of the Lord as he's been killing Christians, as he's been persecuting people. We don't know how the Holy Spirit, this is nowhere else in the Bible that's told to us the conviction that the Holy Spirit was doing on Paul prior to this moment. It might have been from Gamaliel. Remember we found out a few weeks ago that Gamaliel raised Paul? And who is it that defends the Christians in the, in the Sanhedrin? It's Gamaliel. So maybe... Maybe Gamaliel has a softness to this message of Christ that Paul and all of his rigid hardness is just confused by. Maybe the Holy Spirit's using Gamaliel in his life to sort of create some, some goading towards faithfulness. We don't know what it is. But I do think, because this phrase is in here, that, that God's showing us that Paul was resisting the Holy Spirit until what? God finally breaks through. On that road to Damascus, he breaks through in a moment. Uh, and finally, you know, bends his neck. He, he doesn't get stiff necks against the Lord anymore. He, he becomes submission. And we know what happens next, right? We've studied it for over a year now, the story of Paul. Once Paul begins submitting to God, bowing his neck, uh, following him faithfully, he ends up going on three missionary journeys. He plants dozens of churches. He ends up writing most of the New Testament. Like, uh, he, he ends up being used by God in incredible significant ways which don't miss that as tempting as it is to resist the Lord when you are feeling his pressing out of sin towards obedience whatever his calling is as tempting as it is to resist it family life is on the other side of it Paul became such a significant character he wanted a significant life that's why he was a Pharisee doing what he was doing but he became such a more significant life when he actually started following God if God is leading don't miss this if God is leading he has a destination let me say that again. If God is pressing on you, He has something on the other side of whatever it is. May your life blow up if you bring out dark, you know, hidden sin in your life. Might it cause problems in your marriage, in your job, in your life? It really might, family. But I'll tell you the truth. You pulled the pin on that grenade a long time ago. It's not, telling, it's not confessing that causes the problem. It's the sin that caused the problem. And God has purposes in, in getting it out. Yeah, it might have to blow up. But God, can he's a redeemer. He's a professional redeemer. He knows how to lead you through. He knows how to fix sin problems. The fix of the Bible for sin is not hiding. It's not covering it up and ignoring it and acting like it didn't happen. It's been 20 years. I don't have to tell that secret. You do. Confess your sins to one another so that you might be healed, James teaches us. God, if God is leading, he has a destination, family. One more quick note here before we move on to number three. I think Paul learned this lesson. You know, he, he, it took the blinding light on the road to Damascus. It took three days of silence and this prophetic voice of Ananias to teach him. But finally he submits. He professes Jesus. He was baptized. He becomes the missionary we know. And, and can't you just feel how deeply he learned this lesson of submitting to God when he's in these chapters? Like here he is in prison. You know, if, if it's me, I'm miserable. I'm complaining. Uh, God, what are you doing? Get me out of here. Like there's no purpose. How could your purpose be for me to be in prison? But Paul has learned from the Lord that he will direct. He will carry Paul down the path. And so even when he's in prison, even in these hard moments, he's, he's learned that God's way is best, that he can submit to it, that he can be faithful. You see a very submissive Paul, I think, in these, these chapters. It's going to continue till the end. We have to learn this, guys. We have to learn that it is a, 
good thing to submit to God and His will. Even if it feels hard and painful, even if it's difficult, His will is always best. That's where peace is. He's a rock. When you build your house upon Him, even in the storm, it's stable. You've got to learn this. Brings us to number three real fast. God's ways are not our, our ways. Um, I know this is obvious. God's ways are higher than ours. Isaiah teaches us uh, as high as the heavens are above the earth. Um, but I just want to bring this up uh, to the top of our minds as we conclude because I think one of Satan's greatest tactics in getting us to resist God and turn away from Him is our own rationality. You know, that we would, uh, there's a way that seems right to man and we want to follow that way. But Proverbs teaches us the way that seems right to man leads to death. Um, so, you know, let me remind you, God's ways are not your ways. He will often confound us with his leadings. His promptings, the Holy Spirit's promptings, will often feel like, I shouldn't do that. There's no way I should do that. That doesn't make sense. How could, uh, you know, I'm at the end of my career. How could that path make sense? You know, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't always um, lead us in ways that, that make sense. His ways are not the way we would have done it. And I see this most clearly with Paul with this imprisonment. Like, if I'm God, this is not how I end Paul's life. And it's not how you would end Paul's life. Who is Paul? He's the greatest church planner we know. Uh, and we know from uh, Romans chapter 15, Paul says, he's writing one of his letters from prison to the church in Rome. And he says, I can't wait to get to Rome because I want to go to Spain. You can go read this at the end of chapter 15. Paul has a desire to do a fourth missionary journey and a fifth missionary journey and a sixth missionary journey. He just wants to spend his life to live his Christ. If I'm alive in this body, I want to use it for faithful service to the Lord. He wants to do more ministry for God. It's in his heart. It's in his ambition. It's in his, his desire to do this. If I'm God, what am I doing? I'm letting that loose. Get, I'm providentially opening some doors, getting him freed, letting Paul go on this journey. Um, leaving him in prison feels like, you know, Phil Jackson benching Michael Jordan in the NBA Finals. Like, why would you do that? He's your best guy. If I'm, if I'm God, I'm letting him out, but I'm not God, and I don't get to choose. And God, his wisdom's perfect. He knew where Paul needed to be. He knew we needed the book of Romans. He knew we needed the book of Colossians. He knew we needed the book of First and Second Timothy. God had a different plan for Paul. His ways are not our ways, which, again, when he's leading you, this is where I want to bring it home to you all. When he's leading you men, when he's goading you, Satan will tempt you to think that his way doesn't make sense. There's no way it's right. There's no way, I, there's no way it's going to be good for my marriage to bring that up. It, it will feel like the absolute opposite of what's good. But trust the Holy Spirit. If he's leading, he has a destination. There's no way, God, your, your, your calling can be this. It's, it, would, it would change everything about our life. No, that's how he works sometimes. Trust him when he's leading. Now, I'm not saying trust every little instinct you have. He speaks through his word. He speaks through his church. If you're, if you're feeling prompted, you should talk to pastors and get advice and, and where he's leading, especially when it comes to like ministry callings. He affirms that through wisdom. He affirms that through church leaders. But when he's leading, when he, when he is guiding us, he has a destination. We can be confident that that, that destination is good that he's worth trusting. So two quick applications as we conclude. Two ways the, the Lord might be leading in your life where you might be pushing back against him. Number one, resisting repentance. Is there sin in your life? Is there an area where God's been convicting you, pressing on you, but you've been resisting, that you've been kicking against the goads? Are you addicted to pornography? Are you having an affair? Are you about to? Are you drinking? Are you taking pills? Are you totally mismanaging your finances and you're in a mountain of debt and nobody knows? 
Is there darkness in your life that God's been pressing you to give up and let go and bring into the light and you've been pushing back against him, resisting his leadership family? Don't be stiff-necked towards the Lord. He's good. He knows how to lead you. He knows how to rebuild your life. Trust him. Will it be painful? Yes. Will bringing it out and putting it to death hurt? Yes. Just like surgery when you're cutting out tumors, it hurts. But there's recovery. There's redemption. God knows what to do. Trust him. Turn to him. Submit to him. Are you resisting repentance? Second one would be, are you resisting a calling? Maybe for you it's not sin. Maybe it's a pressing of the Lord towards obedience in your life. He's goading you towards a new season of obedience to him. Is he calling you to be a leader of some kind? Is he calling you to teach our kids ministry and, and teach young kids what it means to follow Jesus? Is he calling you to serve in our icon student ministry? Is he calling you to open up your home and host an MC? Is he, is he calling you to tithe for the first time in your life? Is he calling you to share the gospel with a neighbor? He, he keeps pressing you towards some sor- sort of ministry and you just keep kind of ignoring it. Ovation. Is he calling you to ministry itself, vocational work? pastoring or, or, or serving in a church or, or moving your family to the other side of the world to proclaim the gospel to an unreached people group. I don't know. The Lord leads through His Holy Spirit in unique and, and varied different ways. So I, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I can't speak that in your life. But I know this. You know when it's happening. Don't resist it. Trust the Lord. Let Him lead you. My advice is simple. Don't kick against the goads, man. If he's leading you out of sin, if he's leading you towards something new, trust him. Trust him. Put your hands. Stop resisting him. Put your hands down. Let him lead you. Let your neck be soft, not stiff. Don't kick against the goads. Let him lead. We're prone to resist. We've got to learn to submit. And that's everything. And it's 7 o'clock, so let me pray. God, we love you. This is an interesting word that you laid upon my heart as I studied and prepared, Lord. And I don't know what you're doing with it. I just don't know. But I pray for soft hearts. Would we be a submissive people to you, God? The men in this room right now, and every man in this church, every soul in this church, God, sanctify us of sin. Purify us of sin. Don't let us resist you any longer. Let us trust your leading. Let us trust the life that you can build. Lead us, Jesus. We will follow you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.